thank you for tuning in. This is the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and I'm Patrick Alex, your host. On the show, we will be exploring the still and the leverage opportunities of entrepreneurship in emerging markets. We will be talking to founders, venture capitalists, ecosystem builders, and policymakers. I hope you enjoy the session, and let's dive right in. Hi, everybody. This is Patrick Alex from the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and we are back with another episode. This time, I've got the great pleasure to welcome a big emerging markets investor, author, Alex Lazarov, who is full-time working at Cathay as a VC, but he has been quite a spokesperson on emerging markets in general. So it's really a pleasure having you on the show, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, fantastic. To dive right in, I was wondering where you're actually dialing in from as we're still in this COVID bubble, uh, sometimes a bit confusing where we actually are. Um, I'm in, uh, I, I live in the Bay Area and uh, I've stayed, I've stayed resolute through the pandemic. Uh, my wife and I welcomed a baby daughter. And so we've, uh, <laughs> we've stayed in the Bay Area and, and, uh, and still here. Congratulations. That was fantastic. And uh, let's dive right into talking about emerging markets entrepreneurship and, and, and your journey as an investor throughout. Um, you really have quite a few interesting learnings there. So I was wondering to kick things off, how did you actually make your way into the world of entrepreneurship and venture in general? And how did you then end up investing in emerging markets? Happily, I've, I've actually always been interested in this intersection between innovation, investing and questions of impact. Originally, I thought I was going to do a PhD in developmental economics, studying these questions. This was, this was during the time of uh, the rise of microfinance, Muhammad Yunus had won the Nobel Peace Prize, the, the beginnings of impact investing. And so I've been really uh, curious about that intersection. I had the opportunity to work Canadian. I'm Canadian. I, I grew up in the middle of the country in, in, in town called Winnipeg. And I, I had the opportunity to go work on the Canadian version of Wall Street, uh, Bay Street, and fell in love with the tool of finance. Wasn't in love with selling big Canadian insurance companies. Um, but saw that as a really strong leverage point to do a lot of good. And so I ended up, instead of going to academia, doing my MBA and coming out of that with a thesis around wanting to do innovation investing around this nexus of what I'm interested in and in emerging markets. Um, I realized I had no discernible skills. So instead of going to investing right away, I ended up taking the opportunity uh, first to go work in consulting, spent a lot of time across a bunch of different emerging markets uh, when I was with McKinsey and also worked for the Bank of Canada doing regulation. A lot of the industries I care a lot about, like financial services and healthcare and education are highly regulated. And then about uh, just under 10 years ago, I uh, joined uh, Omidyar Network when they were building a financial inclusion fund, uh, fintech investing fund uh, there, and was there for about five and a half years. And about three years ago, joined Cathay Innovation, a, a globally focused venture fund where I'm doing early growth investing uh, around the world. Great journey there. I'm a big admirer of Omidya and, and Cathay as well. Of course, we, we had Jenny Johnson on the show a couple of episodes back. Talking a little bit more about emerging markets. I mean, uh, people might know that you've actually written a book about emerging markets and the potential of entrepreneurship called Out Innovate. How did that come about? How did you have the idea of the book? Um, happily, and you know, it's been about a year. So the book launched right smack in the middle of the beginning of the pandemic last April. Um, the book's called Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley with, with, with HBR. And, and, and what really drove me was, was actually two things that were happening at the same time. On the one hand, um, as a VC, I was working with entrepreneurs um, that were operating all over the world. And I was getting frustrated that 
everything we thought we knew about startup best practice was rooted in a very particular time and a place, Silicon Valley and today. And for a very particular type of asset light software-based company that wants to grow extraordinarily fast. And yet in many of the ecosystems, these entrepreneurs were operating, things just looked different. There was less capital, there might be less resources, there might be more macroeconomic shocks. Um, and yet no one was talking about what it took to scale businesses in those ecosystems, scale and to succeed. And at the same time, I also teach entrepreneurship. Um, and I was teaching at the Middlebury Institute, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in Monterey, teaching uh, entrepreneurship to the MBA program. And, and, and there, a lot of my students were going to go move back and be, uh, and be entrepreneurs. And so as part of that process, I was bringing guest speakers and we were having conversations. And, and, and those two things at the same time, really, it was a growing frustration that no one was starting this conversation. So I decided I would. So I interviewed about 200 founders from around the world. And these are mostly folks leading some of the biggest startups in emerging startup ecosystems, so a couple hundred million dollars, a couple billion or exited before, to learn how they succeeded and why they succeeded and what they did and how what I believe their emerging best practice is not only challenging conventional wisdoms, it's reinventing startup best practices in meaningful ways. Yeah, very interesting. Let's talk a bit more about that reinventing. What actually makes an emerging markets entrepreneur different from the classic Silicon Valley entrepreneur world? And to be honest, it's not a black or white, right? It's, it's very much a spectrum. In the book, I have this concept of the frontier, this notion that where entrepreneurship is happening looks different. And, and obviously, you know, Silicon Valley or the frontier, it's not a homogeneous, you're either in Silicon Valley or, or in the frontier. There's a lot of nuances there. To, to grossly simplify it, I think about, on the one hand, how developed the country is, and on the other, how developing how developed the startup ecosystem is. And you might say Silicon Valley, top right corner, uh, very developed startup ecosystem, very developed country. Bottom left, I interviewed folks in North Korea, right? Or, you know, very developing country, no startup ecosystem, very, very nascent startup ecosystem. But then you might put places like Bangalore, right? Incredible startup ecosystem in a various developing country uh, or what's happening in Latin, taking a Latin America perspective, what's happening in Sao Paulo, right? Very, very strong tech scene. Or you might take my hometown, Winnipeg, a uh, developed country in Canada, but very nascent startup ecosystem. And, and my contention, my, my assertion is that actually the best entrepreneurs outside Silicon Valley still have more in common with each other than they do with Silicon Valley and, and it's comparing those. And so th that's, that's the context. And then to your question, Patrick, around, well, what's the difference? What, what do they do differently? In the book, I talk about three dimensions. The first is the types of businesses getting built. And I think that entrepreneurs in emerging startup ecosystems we can talk a little bit more about it, but are creating industries, not disrupting them. Second, how they build their business, how they think of building sustainability and resilience in their business model, how they think about being mass market and global from the get-go. These very strategic choices that are done upfront change the game. And third, how they think about building their ecosystem and being uh, part of uh, part of building the, the conversation for the, for the ecosystem. That just looks different and is done at a different stage. And, and those are some of the vectors that I explore in the book. Absolutely. And I feel especially valuable your comparison point there saying that you could be in a developed country and have a, still an emerging tech ecosystem, which could be potentially comparable to more developing countries where they have a really rising tech scene. And, and I, th I think that's really really the key message here in terms of leapfrogging development, in terms of the potential entrepreneurship has possibly to flourish everywhere. And that you have different points of comparison and the last frontier is not as 
clearly defined as as the original term last frontier one could say but original was coin so i was wondering with your term last frontier what what ingredients do you do you put in there because one could say okay sao paulo used to be last frontier is it still last frontier how dynamic is this actually and and when does an ecosystem stop to be last frontier in your opinion i call it this notion of the frontier we used to call silicon valley right in the west the frontier. And so it was borrowing from that imagery that I tried to use the term here. And, 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 and to be honest, I think that what we're, what we're seeing is like some gradation. There's elements in each. Uh, I'll give you one example. In the book, I talk about this notion of being born global, of taking a multi-market lens from the beginning. That startups have to do that if you come from a smaller emerging market. And so I interviewed, for instance, the founder of UiPath, talking about a developing, develop, you know, started in Romania, an Eastern European country, not, not a very, very developing country, but not a, a Western country either, right? Kind of, kind of on, on the spectrum. And he talked a lot about the fact that he was based in Romania, had he had to build a multi-market business from the get-go. And that is a theme that I've heard repeated in entrepreneurs in uh, Uruguay and in Rwanda and in Singapore, all over the world. But if you're an entrepreneur operating in Bangalore, you might not say the same thing, right? Because you're operating in a very large local market and you could build a multi-billion dollar business just targeting the Indian market. And by the way, that's the same thing that an entrepreneur in Sao Paulo might say as well, or an entrepreneur in Shanghai might say. And so even within that, there's the way you would apply some of these strategies looks so different. And so I, I think about this much less as a recipe book, do A, B, and C, and D, and then you'll get Z, and much more as a menu. Like, hey, think about what resonates. These, This is how entrepreneurs in situations that might look similar to yours have handled the situation, apply it if it makes sense, and of course, discard it if it doesn't. Um, and, and that's really how, how I thought about it when I, when I thought about the frontier, but really this notion of saying, look, we're all the frontier. We're outside, you know, there's a handful of ecosystems that look really like Silicon Valley, but the rest of the world doesn't. And within that, we should have a conversation. We should be able to discuss how things work. And by the way, Silicon Valley has a ton to learn uh, from what's happening outside Silicon Valley as well. And we can talk a little bit about why I believe that's that's so crucial. Especially as we can still mold emerging ecosystems, maybe we can take some of the lessons learned from the more mature ecosystems where you already have certain legacy and it's difficult to make certain changes. We obviously know the certain downsides and negative implications we had in Silicon Valley, which are obviously widely cited and, and happy to, to dive deeper, deeper into those aspects. I was wondering also your role, your day job, one could say as an investor investing globally, how do you add value best to those entrepreneurs coming from so many different geographies? different points of life, different conditions really to get off the ground. How do you feel you differ from a Silicon Valley investor that adds value just to their portfolio, which is within a 10 kilometer radius uh, by bicycle, one could say emblematically. How does it differ in your opinion? And how do you best extract and add value to entrepreneurs in, in those more nascent ecosystems? Such an important question for investors. You know, the traditional model, right, is you invest locally. What's the old adage, right? You only invest as far as you can drive home from the board meeting that night. I think that model is changing, right? And there are now much more global firms. I think COVID-19 and the pandemic has really shifted the game where a lot more people are comfortable doing Zoom deals in other geos that they wouldn't have done before. My sense is, that founders should think about having a portfolio approach. This is the same way you might do it when you invest in your personal portfolio. I think around the investment table, around the board, I think it's helpful to have different voices. I think it's actually still super helpful to have local investors that really know the market that can help open doors in places. And I think it's super helpful to have domain experts in your industry. Um, I invest a lot in fintech and healthcare. And so I'm obviously biased, 
Uh, but I, I, th- I think there's some value. And I think it's helpful to have global voices. And that voice could come from Silicon Valley, but it could come from other geos too. And, and, and I, I think on this last point, I'm a huge believer in this. I think that the way innovation is happening today is this notion of cross-pollination, where the best ideas are coming from everywhere and are getting improved as they scale. Everyone knows the ride-sharing story of, of what's happening, right? Like a pioneer in the West with Uber um, and Lyft. That model got copied, you know, 99 in Latam and Kareem in the Middle East. And by the way, the biggest in the world is in China, it's Didi. In Southeast Asia, that model was adapted with uh, Gojek and, and ride-sharing. But when I interviewed Nadim for the book, he talked a lot about, hey, look, like ride-sharing is interesting, but what I want to do is have an ecosystem that I, I create employment and support people throughout the day. And so in the morning, I'll drive them to work. At lunch, I'll deliver food. In the evening, I'll drive them home. I'll deliver dinner. And in between, I'll deliver e-commerce and uh, be a cash in, cash out. That model then applied to other geos as well. Um, and, and so that's how innovation is happening. And so I actually think that VC needs to also be geared up that way and needs to think about it from a global lens and cross-pollinate ideas and be a door that entrepreneurs can have to other geos. And so I think that's a seat that makes a lot of sense for founders to have in parallel to to other founders. So when I'm investing in emerging markets, I think it's really important to have a strong local VC, but I really like personally kind of hopefully adding that that bit of the value as well. Very crucial point there with that cross-pollination. That's also what we see at Endeavor now being in more than 40 markets. And you come across an entrepreneur that has a challenge in Indonesia, where you put them together with an entrepreneur in Brazil and that had the same problem and solved it, right? And, and, and that's what I feel are not necessarily those obvious cases because we tend to look at what, how has Silicon Valley done it, especially in emerging markets, one has a tendency to look to the more developed countries for benchmarks. How do you think can we facilitate more cross-pollination across emerging ecosystems, across, I'd say, the global South, Africa, LADAM, parts of Asia, where there's certainly quite interesting similarities, right? Only talking about fintech if you compare Nigeria and Brazil. Uh, great comparison points there and huge opportunities. Do you think they're really taken advantage of uh, at the moment? Um, I'll first make an observation, but the short answer to that question is, I don't think so, not yet and not enough. Um, but the observation that, that I'd have that I'd add, which is I think what's really exciting is that it is no longer a ideas come from Silicon Valley and, and they're going elsewhere. Um, I think some of the best ideas for emerging markets are coming from emerging markets. Everything from super apps that evolved in China that now there are kind of super apps evolving in, in markets el- elsewhere. One of the portfolio companies in, in, in our fund was Pinduoduo, which is a social commerce model that now is getting replicated in a lot of emerging markets to India, right? And the Udon model and SMB enablement, but also kind of infrastructure, ecosystem infrastructure, what they've done with Adar, which is the universal ID, and then tying that with AP- universal APIs on address and bank accounts and things like that. Um, I think that model is going to get copied by emerging markets. And in Chile, right, where, where you are with e-invoicing. And that model getting replicated and copied in different different LATAM countries. And, and by the way, I think that will also happen in the West. That I think that model will, will get exported to, to different geos uh, around the world, including in the West. Um, and so I think that's the bit that's that's exciting. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of. And so I, th- I think there's so much more we can do. And I don't think that we're taking advantage of it properly. I fully agree. And especially I feel that innovation that is happening in emerging ecosystems, in developing markets, and then bring it over into the Western world. That's sometimes quite tough because, I mean, innovators do not, in the Western markets do not necessarily look out for that. E-invoicing, as you mentioned, is a great example. Financing, rapid transfers. We just have to look at new bank and, and the numbers of users they have versus other challenger banks in more developed markets. I feel my life, for instance, 
in a smaller city in Germany is way less technological than my life here in Santiago in, in Chile in emerging market, right? And this is just ironic. And many people, especially when, when they are in those more developed markets, they do not really realize that, right? I think that is so powerful of entrepreneurship in terms of leapfrogging development. And we should really take more advantage of that. In that sense also, there's another component, which is crucial, obviously, for, for ecosystem building, which are exits, right? How can we facilitate more exits and make sure that that multiply effect and that flywheel is actually uh, going the right way? And the, the tendency still is, if you're a successful emerging markets entrepreneur, you want to get listed on NASDAQ or get acquired by by a major global scale-up, but SPACs maybe are changing that and maybe we see more exit opportunities also regionally and not just SPACs listed on NASDAQ. And I know that you've been in quite an interesting piece together with uh, Alan Taylor of Endeavor Catalyst on SPACs. So I was wondering, what's your take on exit opportunities, their importance, frankly, for ecosystem development, maybe it's overrated and what SPACs are playing in that, that part? I think first, I think they are not just important, I think they're crucial. In the, in the book, I talk about this concept of older siblings, but essentially entrepreneurs that have scaled and in scaling and eventually exiting are becoming role models for the startup ecosystem, are training the next generation of entrepreneurs, slash folks that might make a little bit of money in the exit and uh, might become angel investors. Uh, and, and that when you have a couple of them, you know, one is nice for the ecosystem, but when you have a couple of them, it isn't a linear effect. It's actually an exponential effect. In my newsletter, I, I run a newsletter about emerging market tech. And in the article that just went out today, um, I talk about Africa and how we're now hitting this exponential increase in the number of companies at scale and funding at scale and why I think it's going to accelerate. It won't just be a linear increase. It'll be an accelerated increase from here because of this dynamic that, that's happening. I think it is really important. Endeavor has done a lot of research on the multiplier effect and, and, and the fact that entrepreneurs that succeed uh, end up helping a bunch of others. And so I think it's something that we need to encourage. Um, to get exits, we need to first get companies to scale up. One area that there's a big gap, and I don't think people talk enough about it, is in the growth gap. I think there's tons of small investors, seed and A investors that are now becoming stronger and stronger in ecosystems around the world. And, and of course, there are really, really big investors that once the company is evident and it works, are willing to invest anywhere around the world. I still think there's a gap at this kind of series B, C, and D in many markets to really take a company from being a promising startup to really a Goliath in an ecosystem and, and something really big. And so I think that's an area that, that we need to think a lot about before we think about exits, um, but we also need to think about exits. And on, on exits, I think that we're going to see a wider aperture of solutions. And obviously some companies are going to be very successful and list on a variety of in, in, indexes. And I think the NASDAQ will continue being a relevant place for it. But I, I, think, I think people will consider other places too. We haven't seen that many massive acquisitions in emerging markets, I think we're going to see more of those. Obviously, like the Flipkart acquisition in India was like a massive deal. I think we're going to see more of those kind of things happen. And I think that will be good news. And I think SPACs fall into that conversation as another avenue, another arrow in the quiver or what have you that'll work. I think SPACs are, obviously, they're all the rage in Silicon Valley right now and the volume has gone up and and, and they've, they've had some headwinds recently, but I still think will be an important movement. Alan and I argued in our piece that actually it's a bigger deal in emerging markets than it is in, in the US. And the reason is because it's less about speed and certainty of close, which is really the value prop in the US. And it's much more about 
ability to exit. It's like a new avenue. It's ability to facilitate cross-pollination that we were talking about a second ago, right? You're, you you can have one of these global companies getting to partner with, with, with some folks that'd be really, really value-added. Um, and so there's a variety of other dimensions to this that I think make it even a more relevant solution in, in emerging markets. So I'm bullish on it. I'm not a, a SPAC convert in the sense like this will be the only thing that's going to happen. But I, I do think it's going to have one place in a broader assortment of things. And by the way, I don't think NASDAQ will be the end all be all. And, and I think there's a bunch of people thinking about how do you how do you list in other markets, including in local markets in, in, in some cases. I think we'll need to, to push on all those solutions. Absolutely, fully agree. We gotta open up the aperture, uh, have different taking all the all the tools set out. What what options we have in terms of supporting entrepreneurs and in terms of uh, enabling them to scale, and then obviously facilitate access. And that scale up stage you mentioned, where then investors come in, and we definitely have a financing gap in many emerging ecosystems for growth stage investors. Do you feel that that gap should be covered by local investors that subsequently raise bigger funds? Or do you feel that global funds are going to be coming in and covering that gap as well as the ecosystem matures? My personal view is it should be a mix. I think that there's going to be room for both. And as the volume of entrepreneurs and deals goes up, I, I think this is this is an area where, where there's room for collaboration. And by the way, I personally love the idea of deals that are co-led, not just fully led by one, but like that combines some local expertise with a global fund and, and, and folks can bring different views. And I like the idea of and not or. Great point there. Going slightly off script here, but concerning your role as an investor. And we always talk about adding value inside the boardroom, outside the boardroom. What's your take and where you say, and, and we touched upon this at the beginning, but where do you feel a secret source where you add the most value to entrepreneurs? And what tips could you potentially give to more emerging investors that are just breaking out, building their portfolio and trying to find their sweet spot really in all this and differentiate themselves from others? And I think this is an interesting point to reflect on because I think that VCs can provide value in different ways and at different points in time. And so for instance, I'm not an operator. I've never been an entrepreneur. I've had the very great privilege of getting to work in service to entrepreneurs as a VC now, both at Cathay and at Remediar, but also kind of as a consultant and as a uh, in finance before that. And so my value add won't be on, <laughs> won't be on, hey, look, I've had this exact situation. But uh, I, I actually do believe that there, and, and, and this comes back to my point earlier, um, that I actually think there's value to having a portfolio to think about the investors and the folks you bring around the table and and who are folks that can add add value. And, and so I think there's a bunch of vectors where that can happen. And I think one vector is around industry insights and specialization, having a sense of, hey, look, I'm building a neobank. What are the three or four things that I need to worry about? And you know, how have other companies dealt with fraud on onboarding or what have you, right? Like having seen a bunch of this particular problem across a bunch of different things, I think is one area where VCs can be helpful. And I spend a lot of time on, on a narrow, narrower set. I, I'm not a generalist personally, even though uh, our firm invested a couple, a couple of things. I, I invest a lot in financial services and, and, and a little bit about other things. Um, I think second was around this point around cross-pollination, which I think you can combine with, with industry focus and just being able to say, hey, look, here are here are these ideas are getting solved in different geographies. Here are folks that you can connect with. Um, and then I think third is around net, network for downstream investors. I think it's around network for corporates that might be able to help you. This is a big part of our, our approach internally uh, in our firm of having a you know half, half the founder from Fortune 500 corporates from Europe. Uh, just how, how do you actually bring a differentiated network that might open some doors um, and accelerate the company in ways that 
that wouldn't have been expected uh, or fat or perhaps faster than, than, than otherwise would have happened. And then I think five, there's kind of a question around values and, and impact. And, and, you know, personally, I'm a, I, I describe myself as a closet impact investor where I'm trying to invest in great companies, but I'm also trying to invest in companies that will do great and, and will have great impact in, in what they do. And I think that there's room at the board for someone that's can also be supportive of that mission long-term and it's really driven by, by that reason to exist and, and, and be supportive of the entrepreneur. Anyways, I, I think there's a variety of of, of ways to think about where your role is on, on the company. And my advice would be to other VCs, figure out what you're good at. And hopefully that overlaps really nicely with what entrepreneurs want and, and who you're partnering with. And as a VC, we need product market fit too, right? We need we need to be supportive. We need to be offering something that is is genuinely helpful uh, to entrepreneurs at a particular moment in time, but also over the long term. Um, I often joke with my students that the average venture relationship is uh, longer than the average American marriage. And so it actually really matters who the person that you're partnering with and who's the person that's going to be on your board over the long term and really spending some time as a founder to understand who you're partnering with. And just as much as an investor might be diligent in the company, I think I think doing it the other way around is critical. Very, very valuable points there. Fantastic. Moving slightly over into, into another aspect, I wanted to ask you a quick question, which you also elaborated on PC World. Camels or unicorns? <laughs> so uh, maybe first, what's a camel and what's a unicorn? A unicorn technically means a company that's worth over a billion dollars, but it actually comes in Silicon Valley with not just a number, but a philosophy on how you get there. And if the philosophy is how you build a unicorn, it's growth at any cost, where it's okay to have unsustainable unit economics and service of growth, where it's okay to have a very short-term horizon, where it's okay to burn a ton of money all in service of growth. I think that strategy works, right? Like in a very narrow set of circumstances for a very narrow set of business models, uh, in their book, Blitzscaling, Chrissier and Reed, Reed Hoffman talk a lot about that. And that is for winner-take-all market where your competitors have a lot of VC funding, et cetera. And like, if you're building Airbnb, like that makes sense. But for the vast majority of startups and the vast majority of ecosystems, particularly the emerging markets where there isn't the same level of capital and where the problems might not be winner-takes-all, it might not work as well. And by the way, where there are more macroeconomic shocks and where uh, there might be less downstream VCs and where it's harder to get the talent you need right away or what, what, have, what, what have you in, in the challenge. And so in the book, I talk about this notion of building a camel. And, and so first of all, why camel? I didn't even, the, the original draft of the book didn't even have an animal, but my wife joked that in Silicon Valley, you need an animal. Uh, it's like the language, it's the language of, of innovation. They're kind of have to talk about it. So I developed this concept of the, of the camel. The camel is an animal that can sprint across the desert when times are good. It can drink water faster than any other animal. But when times are tough, they just survive and they exist all over the world and, and they make it work. And so the analogy really is this idea of companies that are built with sustainable unit economics from the get-go that manage burn, that think long-term. And it doesn't mean that you're not trying to become a billion-dollar business. In fact, there are lots of billion-dollar camels but it's much more about this point of philosophy on how you get there. Um, one of the folks I interviewed was the co-founder, uh, a guy called Mike Evans, the co-founder of Grubhub. And it took him about 10 years to IPO. I asked Mike, you know, why don't you raise a little bit more VC funding and do it faster? And uh, he said, look, every time I raise money, I was profitable. And I expand, I raised money for a very specific purpose to expand to a couple other cities or to make a small acquisition. And I could have done it in eight years instead of 10 years but I would have done so at tremendously more risk. And that's really the point that I'm talking about is I think that we're tempted when we look at the story of Uber or what have you and say, hey, how do they get to this number? What are the methods that they did? And therefore those methods lead to the outcome. And I think that in many places, if you were going to replay that story a hundred times, the replay the Uber story a hundred times across a ton of different geographies, uh, market conditions, entrepreneurs, what have you, you might not get to that outcome that many times. 
But I think they've repeated the camel playbook many times. You get to that risk-adjusted outcome way more. And that's really why I've espoused that philosophy for the emerging market an emerging startup ecosystem context. Makes all the sense. It's just that there's more diversity. There's not one single playbook in emerging markets. And I think uh, cameras fit nicely into that. If you look at the resilience of entrepreneurs in emerging markets that are very much more volatile than developed markets, we see how companies are still being built in places such as Argentina, such as Venezuela, where literally the volatility is unbelievable. And, and for me, to be honest, difficult to comprehend how they actually do it and how they can be so resourceful. And I think a camel really fits into that picture. Before moving into, into, into the speed round, I was wondering what sectors are you particularly excited about? What opportunities do you see as you've got this global outlook or so? What are you really bullish about currently? In the book, I talk about this concept of creators. It's this notion that entrepreneurs that are building industries rather than disrupting them. Um, and that's a really big focus for me. So, you know, fintech is an area, but I think what gets me really excited about emerging markets is the fact that many of the fintech players, unlike in Silicon Valley, are totally creating a, uh, a new category for the mass market, a solution that didn't exist before. Same for healthcare, same for X, Y, and Z other sector. And so I think for me, it's entrepreneurs that are really building a new sector for the mass market, building a new market as a result of it. Um, that's where I'm spending most of my time and what gets me really excited. Absolutely. And that's something we, we see so much in emerging markets. I feel that they have to build the infrastructure at the same time as they build their business. You have to build the ecosystem, the financial ecosystem that, that's going to harbor your company while doing it. And, and that's just crucial and where you can say, okay, there are more creators than disruptors potentially, right? Yeah, totally. Fantastic. Really, really great points there. And uh, are you ready to move into uh, three fast speed questions there? Bring it. I'm ready. Good. So first one, who is an entrepreneur you admire and why? Well, I'll say Hernan Kaza, but I can give you an answer to why. Well, so let's harken back to the question earlier, right? Of, of this notion of entrepreneurs that catalyze ecosystem. In, in the book, I call him an older sibling, but like, you know, someone that built Mercado Libre and then did a lot of ecosystem infrastructure and the local venture capital association launched a VC fund. I think is really kind of a great example, a Latin American example of an entrepreneur that's done that. And, and he's not alone. There's more and more of them, but, but I think he's a good example of what I'm talking about. Definitely. Great example. Uh, he and Nico Segassi, what they've done with Kazakh and looking at the, the two funds they've just raised, which is the size of the Latin VC ecosystem a couple of years back. It's just massive and it really just shows the potential of the region. Second one, in one phrase, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received and you would like to pass on to others? Companies get board of directors, you should have one too. In the sense of you should think of mentors and people in your life as folks you can call and have advice on. Like who's your board of directors for the toughest decisions you have to think about? Yeah, you need some kind of sounding board. You need, you need that, that exchange of ideas. It's so crucial. Three keywords that describe a successful business in your opinion. Camels, creators, cross-pollinators to harken back to our conversation. Brilliant. That wraps it up nicely. Really great chatting with you, Alex. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share before we wrap up? No, this is great. I'm really excited to have uh, have the opportunity to chat. If folks want to learn more, feel free to sign up on my uh, on my newsletter, 99% Tech. You can subscribe at my website, alexlazar.com, A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W.com or, or buy my book, Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley, you can find it anywhere books are available. Given the context, I would encourage you to support your local bookstore if you're interested. But thank you so much for having me. This is really, really fun. And I'm a huge admirer of uh, Endeavor and all the work you're you're doing, uh, building emerging market startup ecosystems on the front lines of it. So uh, in the frontier.
No, appreciate it. It was great having you. It feels great being at the frontier and really pleasure having you on. Also can really recommend all those sources, all the content you, you, you've got uh, with your newsletter, with your book. Really also helped me educate myself on emerging markets when, when branching out into Chile. So I uh, really appreciate it. Great having you on the show. Thank you.